0: Oh, hello. Look at us. We are back for the second week in a row, which if you've been paying attention has not been the case for the last couple of months. Uh, Consistency has been a little elusive for me as I've been really focusing in on other people's podcast production projects and trying to just maneuver my way through this world of entrepreneurism. Um, So I want to Just to remind you that I'm entering my second year of business as owner and lead producer for Cold Shower Media, and Cold Shower Media specializes in audio production with a major focus on podcasts and helping individuals and companies begin podcasts of their own. And I've found great value, and I believe that my clients do and have as well, of using podcasts as an additional way to connect or attract clients as well as serve as an educational or marketing tool for their business. And that is really what I believe very strongly in is the benefits that there are to podcasting, especially when put in the hands of a marketing department. And they can figure out all different kinds of ways of utilizing the content that is produced through a podcast. So if that's something that you or you think your business would be interested in and figuring out how to leverage something like a podcast to your benefit, then please reach out. As we're entering the second year of business, we are coming up against that fine line of determining how heavy can our workload be with such a small operation? Are we going to have to increase rates in the future? Are we going to have to limit the amount of clients that we can take on for these production type things? So I would just encourage you, don't wait on something like this. Um, if, If it's an idea that you've been toying around, let's at least talk about it. All right. So let's talk about the cold shower podcast specifically. I've mentioned that consistency has been elusive, but it is something that I am going to get back on track with. And if a resurgence of this podcast is something that we want to have happen, we're very dependent on a new influx of ratings and reviews on Apple podcasts. And so I've always encouraged people in the past, if you listen on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, please go tap the five-star rating and leave a review. Those are the things that help grow the show the most. And like I said, if this is any type of resurgence, it's going to be largely dependent on you and whoever else might leave a rating and review. So I would really highly encourage you to do that, and I would very, very much appreciate it. Now, my guest today was Dr. Spencer Couturier, and we had an excellent conversation. He's someone who has looked very deeply at burnout and poverty of purpose and how no matter what type of work you're doing, it's important to find purpose. And some people can find that a little easier than others. Maybe we have to remind ourselves of our purpose throughout our endeavors, but he's looked very deeply at that and has a history of, of writing. He's a very sharp person that that just sees things. And I think in a really refreshing way, and not to mention he's also a doctor. And so to kind of mix these worlds is something that I think is really unique. And I think that you're going to enjoy the conversation that I had with Dr. Spencer Couturier. So here we go. All right. Welcome back to another episode of the cold shower podcast. I have a very interesting guest with me today. We were just spending, I don't know, the last 15 minutes uh, chatting (laughs) leading up to it. And I have a few conversations, uh, where I can just tell as soon as I meet the person that it's actually going to be more exciting than what I had even thought. And I was already pretty interested in, in talking with you. So why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself and then we'll get started. Cool. Yeah. So my name is Spencer Couturier. Um,
1: hard to describe exactly what I do, but by, by training, I'm a radiologist. Uh, so I, I work with, uh, a group here in Traverse city. Um, but I'm also a writer, um, maybe eventually a podcaster.
0: Excellent. Um, When did you, when did you first know, like at what age or what was that trajectory like of when you realized you might want to do what you're doing now?
1: Oh, that's a tough question, but I think it all stemmed back from wanting to be an aerospace engineer and then taking an AutoCAD class and uh, not doing so well. Okay. (laughs) I thought maybe, uh, maybe I should pivot at that point. I think that was in 10th grade.
2: All right. Um, right
1: And then I wish I had a highly altruistic answer for why I wanted to, but I think originally I was really just like a stubborn kid. And, uh, someone told me that like going into medicine was the hardest career that you could do. And so I was like, okay, well, if that's the hardest thing, then I'll just do that. Yeah. And, uh, I don't know. I, it just kept going. Um, I, I did grow to love it. Um, as I, as I entered college and started uh, studying a lot of biology, um, really diving into chemistry, a lot of diverse, diverse subjects. Mm -hmm. Um, but it was it was not that light bulb. Aha! I'm gonna be a physician moment for me. Right. Um, that.
0: that um, what you had said about when you were talking about you know exploring being an engineer. Or not one of my friends. He's a musician. He has this some line in one of his songs where he's talking about you know wanting to be an astronaut. And he writes a letter to NASA, like you know how when you're growing up you can write a letter to NASA, yeah. and hope and just tell him like, hey, you know, I'm the next, uh, I'm the next big thing. I'll be walking on the moon. And said something like. Yeah. He got a response. They sent him like a pair of sandals and said, you know, thanks for reaching out. And and he's like, and that's when I took it as my sign that I'll just handle what's going on down here on earth. And so it's funny. It kind of sounds like that, but what a, what a shift because you didn't necessarily pick anything easier necessarily. Like you said, this is a pretty tough field to be in. Yeah. Yeah, it
1: it is. It's um, quite challenging in a lot of ways. I think it's really just a marathon, Mm -hmm. you know, To be honest, I mean, I just took a board exam uh, a few months ago, and so that's I've been taking exams ever since college, really. Um, So I'm 33 now. Okay, I mean that I graduated college I think when I was 21. Man, yeah. So I mean it's another like 12 years of school basically while kind of while working.
0: Yeah, that it's so crazy, and um, so I actually for the audience, I met Spencer's wife first because she was participating in another project that I was working on. And so she had, had told me about you and was saying that you're interested in some of these things and that you had mentioned in your intro, also the writing aspect and and some of the things that you're passionate about in terms of the messaging. And so maybe talk a little bit about that, how you're not that old. I feel like when, when there's someone who is in the medical field and they're like, yeah, I'm going to maybe start to diverge into some of these other areas. Maybe they're like 60, you know? And so they're like, yeah, I've done that. Now I want to do something else, but I'm interested in how you can be as young as you are. And you're already like, I want to really get involved in some of these other things too.
1: Yeah. you know, I think it actually comes back down to my original, um, passion, even though I wanted to be an engineer, I, I was always fascinated by literature and, mm-hmm. um, I think I just grew up thinking that going straight into a, a writing career was also a very challenging path and maybe full of a lot of uncertainty. And um, I wanted a different lens to view the world through, whether that was like being an engineer or a physician. I, th- I thought doing something else would bring a lot of perspective eventually
2: mm-hmm.
1: to to writing. And so that was always the framework that I was using to kind of bide time while I was okay. pursuing these other goals. So being a physician, I thought it was a natural um, fit in a lot of ways because there are there's a great history of physician writers, and uh, I think by by its own nature, practicing medicine, right, you you see a lot of things about humanity up close. You mm. learn a lot of uncomfortable truths about life, death. Um, I don't know. It just seemed like a natural fit. Mm-hmm. The, the further along I got with with my medical career, um, but the goal was always to come back and to write about it. Okay. And, uh, eventually to make that a bigger and bigger chunk of my life, Mm -hmm. um, you know, and I think in five to 10 years, I'm, I'm hoping that that'll be a much more substantial chunk of what I'm doing than currently. Right. Um, but because of medical training, um, you know, I'm really just starting my career at the age of 33. (laughs) So, you know, it, 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 takes some time. Um, but I was, I was really fortunate when I was training, um, I was part of a physician writing community, um, and I had a lot of great mentors who've who've helped me along the way.
0: Okay. Yeah. Cause you talk about, you know, being in the medical field or being a physician that you have to come to grips or you're witnessing some of these truths that maybe not the average person, um, is seeing about humanity. Like we all are witnessing truths at certain points of our lives that other people aren't privy to, but, um, there's definitely the additional thing of you could sit there and you could witness that in your field, but it's a totally different skill set, isn't it, to be able to then relay those truths through writing to the to the public.
1: Yeah, you know, it is that there are two hats you have to wear. There's there's the observer and then there's the uh there's the other person who has to synthesize it all and mm-hmm. actually make sense of it and then effectively communicate it, which can be really hard. Um to the Average person who hasn't, you know, been in a high stress medical situation. Um, I mean, maybe they have some idea just from watching popular television, but Mm -hmm. I think until you're really confronted of of a situation with like life and death, high stakes, I don't know, it it is a unique thing. Um, and I think, uh, you just don't know how you're going to react until you're in these situations Mm -hmm. for the first time. Right. Um. You know, going straight from college into medical training, you know, I, d- I didn't have an experience like being in the military or some other sort of um, career where I would have been put into like life or death situations or um, situations where the decision I make has a significant impact on someone else's life.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so it's just a very humbling thing to be put in that situation and to have people look to you.
0: I, I bet, man, yeah, to to be in those positions, like you said, where you're making decisions that are drastically impacting someone else's well being, is, is just, it's an impressive position to be in. And then to have the trust of, of people in that way is fascinating. And we don't all get that experience. And so I think that's why I'm, I'm so, uh, interested in your willingness to, like you said, synthesize it and have people be able to read it. And so do you think that the things that you are writing or will end up writing in the future are going to be for people like you that are in the medical field or will it be for, you know, the society at large, people like me? Oh, I want it to be
1: for society at large. Um, I mean, of course, you know, I, I love communicating and working with other physicians and healthcare providers. I mean, it's a great community of people, but I'm much more interested in, um, you know, following the footsteps of some of the great, kind of scientific educators and communicators. Mm-hmm. Um, people like Carl Sagan, he's a big hero of mine, um, who are able to take really complex topics and distill them down and, and effectively communicate them. And I just think it's so powerful to be mm-hmm. able to shine a light into these areas of exploration that maybe the average person, just because they're not part of it, um, may may not have the opportunity to fully glimpse like what's going on mm-hmm. in the medical world. Because um, it's it's rapidly changing. Um, in a lot of exciting and terrifying ways, right. Um, in a lot of ways, to be honest, what the work that I do, I feel like lines up with what we were just talking about. Um, as a radiologist, my job is essentially to to look at medical imaging studies, form a really quick picture of what's going on globally with someone's health based off that information, and then to write a report
2: mm.
1: um, synthesizing all that information and making recommendations and trying to help like steer the ship.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, So it's, it's kind of an odd realization that the stuff I do every day in, in medical practice kind of feeds into my bigger goal of doing that, um, for the average person, right. Right. in in a non-medical way. Yeah. How
0: do you, how do you feel then about, I guess the age that we, that we live in right now where, and the pandemic might be, have presented this in a totally new way, but where sometimes people give license to themselves to be experts. Um, and I, I guess that's why I can appreciate your willingness to maybe write like an entire book as opposed to just a quick blog or a quick article and submitting it to, to somewhere. Um, not that there's anything wrong with that either, but I think that I myself have been guilty of this where, okay, I read a couple articles on, on this point of view. And now I, I like puff my chest out and think I'm an expert in this area. And sometimes it's because I wasn't, Like willing enough to sit down and read an entire book on the subject. And so we have all this information and we can consume it very quickly. Um, So I guess is, is there a part of you that's like, I want to contribute to some of the just depth of, of a subject to, I don't know, in some way, like steward, the next person coming up, making sure they're getting the right sense of things.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, I think those are all really important points um, that you made. And I do want to help. I think encourage depth over, um, quick bites, hot Mm -hmm. takes, just the idea of consuming something and then kind of leaving it. Um, but I think the overarching thing that I, and maybe this again, is probably related to medical training is humility and Mm -hmm. being humble and just realizing that you're, you're quite often wrong. Um, and even though in the moment you may feel you're, you're totally right about something oftentimes, makes fools of us all. And we realize, Oh, I really didn't understand that issue. Um, you know, five years down the road, just because life is very complex. And a lot of these issues are very complex. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and a big part of my training was honestly being wrong tens of thousands of times, Mm -hmm. um, over the course of like a decade. Um, and that's really hard at first when, you know, as a pre-medical student and a medical student, we're kind of groomed to be perfectionists, And, uh, you know, you, you take a bunch of super type A people, give them thousands of exams, encourage them to never get anything wrong. And then you throw them into the real world. And all of a sudden you're getting things wrong all the time. Mm. Um, you you just have to develop that ability to, to take criticism, to understand your limitations and, uh, to seek out guidance from people who know more than you and, and to be humble enough to do that. Um, and that, that was something that was hard for me at first. Yeah. And, uh, but I think now, I mean, I'm so thankful that I've had that experience because I'm much less likely to assume that I understand everything about a topic. Um, even if I'm very well versed.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and I think there, there is also an interesting flip side. The more, you know, about a topic, sometimes it can blind you mm. to outside perspective, um, or you can be anchored to a point of view because you're looking at the world through a certain lens. Right. Yeah. Um, so I, I, always kind of view myself, uh, more like a generalist. Okay. Um, so my goal is to have a mental toolkit that allows me to think about a lot of different things and to try to see them from multiple angles and then, um, make sense of them. Mm-hmm. And then the goal is to try to communicate that effectively yeah. through, through writing. Um, so you know, I feel like at certain points in my career i had I had like branch points where I could have went in different directions. um when I was training, uh, a lot of my mentors were running research labs and very like heavily academic careers where they're kind of the world's expert in this one thing um, and for a while, I thought I might go down that path. but I think inside I just knew that I've always been more of a generalist mm-hmm. or maybe more of a big ideas kind of person, and so I've just never meant, I think, to be the world's expert on one topic, mm-hmm. um, and that sort of kind of has informed every decision I've made along the way.
0: Yeah, very, very interesting. Do you think uh, being a generalist or generalism lends itself well to like humility? I think
1: so. I think if if you're um, think of yourself that way, then I think you're you're more of like a, a hunter gatherer mm-hmm. or a scavenger, right? You're you're foraging ideas. You're always going out into the world and talking to other people, trying to understand what's out there. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, I, I do spend a lot of time, um, with myself as well, thinking about, you know, how do I feel about a topic? Um, trying to really understand my own, I guess my own cognitive bias. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, but yeah, I I think, I don't know, I think there's a lot of advantages, honestly, to being a generalist, unless you're trying to accomplish a very specific goal. I mean, the world definitely needs specialists who mm-hmm. are, um, the best at what they d- do in a very narrow range. Yep. Um, but yeah, I think the world probably would do better with, with more generalists.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, even though our, our training is kind of away from that just in our education system. Mm. Um, have you read the book range? I haven't, no. Oh, was it, that by? Oh geez. I'm gonna yeah, we can I can look it up. Uh, it's a fantastic book. Um, it's a it's basically about how um if you if you train uh, train people in a more general way, they excel and it it's like kind of a generalist guide to thriving in the modern world. Um, a lot of things relate back to athletics. so there are a lot of um, interesting research studies that show that kids who start out as more generalized athletes actually end up outperforming kids who are very highly specialized from an uh, early yeah. age. Okay. And so the idea is, um, to kind of cross-train,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, athletically, which is a little bit counterintuitive now. Yeah. Um, in, in America, we kind of silo our kids into sports, right. At from a very early age, uh, AAU basketball, travel, hockey, mm-hmm. and ends up being like a year round endeavor. Um, and I think there's this idea that by, um, Super specializing early, you're getting an advantage, mm-hmm. but a lot of the research in in range points the opposite direction. Actually, yeah. Um, and so I kind of when I read that book, it just resonated with me yep. because I've always thought of myself more as like a, a generalist,
0: I guess. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. Is it kind of antithetical then to the Malcolm Gladwell like ten thousand hour type of thing, or can they can they both exist?
1: I think I they guess. can coexist. Okay. um Yeah, it's interesting that ten thousand hour rule. Um, there's a guy named Anders Ericsson who who pioneered that research um yeah. he actually came and talked uh, to us when we were when we were doing our okay. training yeah um he's a he's a really interesting guy i think Malcolm Gladwell um i wouldn't say he got it wrong mm-hmm. but i think he just he provided a very simplified version of yeah what that research was implying uh, but no i think i think there is still a role for deliberate practice which is basically practicing under a very specific circumstances with real-time feedback. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's a specific way to get better at something over time.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and, uh, I think it does lead to better results. Um, I think the goal though is to understand what, what and when should you be doing that? Okay. Um, you know, for, for certain things, like if you're trying to master a musical instrument, um, if you're trying to learn radiology, um, that's, that's like an appropriate time to being doing deliberate practice. Um, but if you're like a 10 year old kid, I don't know, it, the research suggests that maybe that's not the correct, like age and stage to be mm-hmm. doing that sort of practice on one discrete skill. Yeah. Um, but I, I'm sure there's a lot of controversy mm-hmm. in the scientific community about that statement,
2: yeah,
0: because you can keep finding different variables, probably, yeah. and, and being like, "Oh, I forgot to account for that." I, I think of examples maybe in my in my own life, and so basketball was a huge deal in my family, and there's five brothers, so that lends itself well to the idea of you know a basketball team. And um, my older brother was the most successful basketball player out of our family, he ended up playing professionally in Europe for a couple of years. And um is now that's his career is once he retired from playing professional basketball, he now has a full-time business where he's training teams and individuals um and doing skill work with them and running clinics and all different types of things. And what's interesting is that he refused in high school to play any other sport other than basketball. He's like, no, I'm dedicating all my time to basketball. And I did the same thing. I played one other sport. It was golf. And I did it because my grandpa was the coach and all my time, my extra time was kind of spent like playing basketball. So if you zoom out, you're like, Oh, well Taylor and his older brother both only focused on basketball. But the more you zoom in and you really realize like, no, Taylor also spent like more time playing video games and hanging out on the couch. (laughs) Steven his older brother literally when he says all he's going to do is basketball, that means there wasn't free time either. He was only doing basketball. He wasn't taking the same breaks that Taylor was taking. And so um, it's, I think that you can find differences in, in, in those things by zooming out, zooming in like, yeah, we're similar in this area where it's true. We only play basketball in high school, but the more you zoom in, the more you realize like, he also spent many, many more hours playing basketball than what I did. And you see that playing out in the success, right? Right. Later in life.
1: Yeah, no, for sure. And there's no shortcut to mastery. Mm -hmm. um, I think is what a big takeaway from that 10,000 hour rule idea is and what Malcolm Gladwell was talking about, you know, really to be world-class in something. I think it is true that you have to dedicate an enormous amount of time Mm -hmm. in a structured way to mastering it. Right. Um, The idea that in intrinsic talent alone can get you there, I think is increasingly becoming, um, becoming known to be a flawed understanding, right. Of Mm -hmm. how humans perform. Um, so I think it's not to say that there isn't a role for extreme focus or deliberate practice or, um, becoming world-class at something like, I think those are, those are all extremely important things. Mm -hmm. And, um, and for certain people, they may be the appropriate thing. Um, but I think, I guess the implication of range is more just that, uh, that idea of like, are we doing kids a disservice by like over-specializing them too quickly? Yeah. And are we, um, neglecting this other broad skill set that could serve them very well, mm-hmm. even in, even in a specific role like basketball. Right. Um,
0: yeah, I guess my, and I should, I should really read this book. Cause I think it said it's by David Epstein. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Yeah. And so, um, I've actually, I have heard of him and I think I have heard of that book in the past too. I should give it a read. It does make me wonder though, like with range is say that we have a group of, of kids and we're providing them with all different kinds of opportunities to explore different areas. Um, And then measuring, you know, the success that comes along with that versus the success that comes from specializing is the opportunity for range, just giving them chances to find something that they're really passionate about. And then they naturally excel at that because once they find it, then they are dedicating all that time to it. Like it does it, does it talk about that type of thing?
1: It does. Um, you know, I do think there is a role for kind of intrinsic motivation and, and the idea of passion. Mm -hmm. Um, because when you do find that thing that connects with you, you're going to, maybe it's just easier to dedicate yourself to that practice. Um, but I do think maybe again, like the idea of passion is also something that is widely misunderstood. And there, I think there are two camps. There are people who sort of assume that passion is something almost mystical, right? Like it's mm-hmm. uh, this this goddess that you try to find, and when you find it, you know this is the thing for me. And there are other people from the opposite end who who actually believe that it's the opposite. It's you do something and you become passionate about it. Okay. Um. There. There's another book. Um. By uh, he's a computer scientist, Cal Newport. It's called I'm "So Good They Can't Ignore You." Okay. And the idea in that book is is sort of um, pushing back on the idea that you should follow your passion. Mm. And His idea is that you should um, get great at something and you'll become passionate about it. Okay. And then that will lead to all these new doors and avenues of success opening for you.
0: Interesting. Cause to me that kind of goes against the idea of humility. Like I think about when you get good at something and then you become passionate, do you become passionate because you're starting to get attention? You're starting to get accolades. Like, all that stuff. So isn't that like the opposite of humility or maybe that isn't a, um, doesn't involve humility at all. I don't know. I th-
1: I think it's, um, I think it can coexist with humility. I think it's just the idea that as you get better at something, you offer more and more value okay. to the world in the, in that realm, mm-hmm. whether it's computer science, whether it's basketball, uh, medicine. And, and as you do that, I think because you're offering more value to other people and, and to the world really, um, you do get recognized, you do get more rewards, but I think you also, um, if you're doing it right, I think you become more aware actually of how far you have to go still. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I, it's an interesting thing that you bring up about humility and expertise, because I think very often back to my, my training and uh, some of the smartest people in the world that I've worked with are actually some of the most humble Mm. And they, uh, I think the closer in science, the closer you get to the edge of, um, being an innovator, right. And pushing boundaries, the more you realize that those people, they understand how little they know. Mm. And there, there's kind of a phenomenon in science where like the the closer you look at something, the more complexity you see. Mm -hmm. And the more you realize that this, this thing that you think you understand is so much more complicated than meets the eye. Mm -hmm. Um, and I've noticed that as like a common trait amongst, um, just mentors and, and colleagues who are extremely successful. They're also extremely humble and willing to to say, I don't know. Mm. Um, and just the act of saying, I don't know, I think drives so much of their success, right? Because they're willing to acknowledge they don't know. And then they seek out answers.
2: Yeah.
0: Right. Um, yeah. So they're, they're kind of leaving some things up to, to mystery, but maybe mystery only for the time being until I figure it out.
1: Yeah. Okay. or they're using the idea that they don't know as um, a way to almost motivate themselves and to, to get more in depth on this topic. Mm -hmm. You know, if I'm um, if I'm running a research lab and I'm exploring a problem and I hit a roadblock, um, just the idea that I don't know, that'll drive me to reach out to a colleague that'll drive me to do maybe several different research projects to try to understand that opens up all these new doorways mm-hmm. and new pathways to try to know more. But um, instead of mastery, though, in, in science, especially, you're always just opening doors and going kind of further into a rabbit hole.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And there's never an end point, right? I think for anything complicated, there's just more complexity underneath. And so yeah. we're, we're always just trying to approximate that complexity mm-hmm. into a way that we can understand
0: the world. So, yeah, you talk about that. and with science, you know, there's these processes that are taking place and it's like, well, what we kind of thought here turns out down the line it was incorrect or we we were a little bit off. Um then now you have if you're conducting that type of work, you know, and especially under public scrutiny and it's impossible not to talk about these things in the context of the pandemic, but you have science where, you know, you're the medical community or whoever, the CDC is giving recommendations and how we should be responding to this um, to COVID. And then turns out three, four months later, they were like, you know, maybe we were a little off on what we had recommended at the time. And people get so offended. They get really upset. Like, well, you told me the wrong thing, blah, blah, blah. And it's like the thing that I guess I've tried to remind myself is I should kind of count myself lucky to have been privy to the process of learning and understanding that was taking place. Right. And so is, is that like, Difficult to live and operate in that world where it's like, man, if I I kind of feel the pressure of having to get this right. Like I hope what I discover today still stands to be true in a month, because if it doesn't, people are gonna question my character and who I am.
1: Yeah, no, I think those are all really interesting points and it's a, a very um, timely thing to be aware of. One thing I I think back to early in the pandemic, and, and even now. I think a lot of it comes down to um just not clearly communicating. Yeah, right. And trusting people to um take information and try to understand it. Mm-hmm. You know, regardless, I think, of where you fall on any of these issues, I think better communication is always a better answer. Mm-hmm. Um and uh, you know, I think it does underscore a big problem just in society in general. I think there's a lot of uh difficulty with clearly communicating science and what, what it actually is, how it happens, um, what scientific results even mean, mm-hmm. you know, I think the news does a terrible job of taking a kind of a clickbait mm-hmm. scientific conclusion, um, and presenting it as like, okay, now coffee cures cancer. Right. Great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but if you dig into the paper, you know, there, there's so much nuance there. You're looking at statistical models. There's like a P value involved mm-hmm. to try to tell you how significant that result is. Um, and i think it it kind of goes back to like we we're just not very good at educating most people about uh the scientific process understanding statistics understanding results yeah. and and um it's a big issue i mean even even in the medical community um we didn't have extensive training by any means in in mm-hmm. interpreting research it's really something you have to learn on your own right um and so i, I don't think at all that like uh, physicians are exempt from that mm-hmm. critique um and it It is honestly a very challenging thing to, to learn how to parse research and decipher um, what is actually being concluded. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think from a, from a public official standpoint, again, I I think a lot of it comes down to messaging and being very clear and honest about what we do know and what we don't know. And um, probably early on in the pandemic, if, if maybe that had been more transparently done. Right regardless of where you fall, I think we'd probably be in a better place.
0: Yeah, that, that's a really great point. And I think we kind of came full circle back to what's making your mission. And so interesting is that, you know, you're participating in the medical community, but you also want to participate in the messaging by writing books and, and synthesizing that stuff. And so, um, I think that you're exactly right because right now we're operating from a place of, okay, so we have the science community who is conducting the research and exploring these topics and they're not the ones that um, either they don't have the opportunity to craft the messaging. Like they don't have time for that. They're not participating in that world Um, or the people that are doing that don't know how to like properly read and relay what the scientific community came up with. And so then you get this kind of, I don't know, messaging that is inaccurate or it's scary, it's fear mongering, whatever. So that is really interesting. And I like that idea of the people that are actually participating in the science becoming more adept at the messaging aspect of it. Yeah.
1: You know, I think it's a very, we're in the very early stages of, I think there is kind of a grassroots movement in the scientific community um, of people starting podcasts and people actually trying to directly talk to more of the public about what they're doing mm-hmm. and, and helping people have access to scientific oriented conversations. But I do think, I think it's actually a responsibility um, on scientists and anyone doing science to, to become a better communicator mm-hmm. and to build bridges instead of walls. Right. Um, you know, one thing I think a lot about is is because of just various divisions in our society. Right. I think there is a big divide, unfortunately, between people in the scientific community and maybe different segments of the public. Um, And I I think that historically, maybe there's been a tendency to um, maybe resent or um, Mm. push those people away. Um, But I'm very much of the opposite mindset. I want to build bridges and I want to have meaningful conversations to help show people, you know, what's possible through science and to make it accessible and to make it something that, people should be very interested in because it it totally changes our understanding of the world, Mm -hmm. regardless of how you feel about, um, about science. Um, I I think there's just so much good that comes from bringing more people under that tent Mm -hmm. and trying to be more inclusive.
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah. Because, um, I think we also can get in this mindset of, you know, when we hear someone's opinion on, maybe an unrelated topic to what we're even discussing in the moment. We hold that against them. We're like, yeah, but I didn't like their take on that. So I don't even want them to participate in this. And that's kind of the the bridge thing. Um, walls versus bridges. It's like, I think if you, some people are afraid to build bridges because they don't want those people they disagree with to ever use that bridge that they put the effort into building, you know? Yeah, I I totally,
1: I agree. And I think it kind of comes back to another core belief that i have i guess and i I don't think it's a unique belief um i don't believe that we're we are our ideas right you know i think a lot of people they're they feel so attached to their ideas and Mm. their identity is like drilled down into these ideas i think you see this a lot in politics right um but i I believe very much the opposite i mean like i'm willing to discard a bad idea
2: Mm -hmm.
1: the second that i'm convinced that it's not a good idea yeah and maybe later I will readopt it if I'm convinced the other way. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think a lot of things in our society are just set up to not encourage that. Um, yep. You see that in politics too. You know, people get blamed for flip-flopping on topics. People get blamed for abandoning ideas. And really, we should be encouraging that. I, mm-hmm. I always say, like, in an ideal world, I would love to vote for someone who changes their mind on a big idea. Yeah, And um, does it in like a transparent way and with a, a real understanding of an issue. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for me, um, if I'm wrong about something, it actually, I feel like it's a, a, a point of moral pride to be able to say I'm wrong and mm-hmm. I, I can change my idea on that. Yeah. Um, yeah. and it's so liberating. If you're not your ideas, then you're free to consume
0: and talk to other people and learn mm-hmm. and adapt. Yep, exactly. Yeah. For some reason we, and I don't know what came first, what, you know, when we talk about politics, like, um, you know, did we as the as the public, as citizens of this country say, did we create the environment where we we weren't welcoming to politicians flip flopping or changing or, or growing even in some ways? Because a lot of times change we think is a bad thing. And it means that, well, they're they didn't have their convictions. And so you got to have your convictions on things and not change your mind. It's like actually change is just a part of growth a lot of times. And so if you gather new information, more information, new perspectives, you're privy to information you didn't have before, you are going to change in some way because you're, you're more well-informed. And so I don't know if we don't have an appetite for that, or if the politicians like say in this instance, crafted that environment themselves, I have no idea.
1: You know, I think it's probably both. Um, I think people intrinsically do want to, understand the world. And I think a lot of people are curious. Um, but I feel like right now, uh, at least in our political paradigm, and I think we're up, op- we're operating in this, um, dualopoly, right. Of two political parties that mm-hmm. I think if you really drill down to the average person, I mean, the, the overlap in the middle is so much higher, right? Like yeah. I, I think if you really, you think about a core hardcore Democrat or a very hardcore Republican that probably represents more like 20% of Mm -hmm. each far end. Right. And I think most people probably have significant overlap in the middle. And um, that's super interesting. I think it just, it's the polarization that happens when you have one alternative or the other. And, um, you know, I think a guy like um, I I was just listening to a podcast with Andrew Yang Mm, on there. And he, he was talking about how he's, he's actually starting a third political party. Okay his idea is to eliminate um, he wants to eliminate like the primary system. Yeah. Cause he feels as though that's driven by like the most hardcore 20% of mm-hmm. either political party. Yeah. And uh, kind of draws out more extreme candidates, more extreme viewpoints. Um, And he's trying to strike a middle ground mm-hmm. um, and capture kind of a, a more populated uh, populist point of view. Right. right. Um, Which I think is interesting. I mean, it, I don't think we were ever intended to be in this situation um, where we have two dominating political parties two black or white Mm worldviews. I mean, the world is so complicated.
0: Yeah, I agree. And I actually did an episode on uh, ranked choice voting. So if people haven't listened to that, you should go back and listen to that because um, it is interesting. There is this movement to um, instead have ranked choice voting. And what I find interesting about that is that in some ways it like it takes the pressure off because you're not participating in the system in the same way you used to. And I, what I'm interested in, I guess, is cutting down on the idea of like the lesser of two evils. And I hate that, you know, for the last, however many, um, you know, presidential elections that I've participated in, I think I've voted due to my age four times in, in my life. And so it's like, Why, why do I feel like every time I go to the booth, it's a lesser of two evils. I would love to just be able to like rank them according to what they've presented and what they said they stand for. And in some ways it takes the pressure off, but it also makes me feel better about the vote that I'm placing, I guess.
1: Yeah, no, I I agree. I think that's another big thing of, um, Andrew Yang's kind of new proposal Mm -hmm. is rank choice voting. Um, I think the idea that you could vote for someone who you believe in and you, you don't feel like you're throwing away your vote. Right. Um, It'll be interesting to watch over, you know, over the coming years, if that's actually a successful mm-hmm. um, endeavor or not, you know, the the history of third parties in the United States isn't great. Right. <laughs> but, um, you know, I'm, I applaud him and other people for trying to do mm-hmm. something to strike a middle road. Right. Because I do think um, the answer to division is not to become more firmly entrenched on on either side. Mm-hmm. Um, I, th- I think it's going to take some sort of a popular movement.
2: Yeah.
0: Agreed. And yeah, you talk about, you know, that there is more of an overlap than what we think. And it's just so frustrating because you see things like, um, I don't know, immigration, for example, where something like, I don't people need to look this up, but like 70% of of US citizens would like to see some type of immigration reform. Now, of course, we all have different ideas of like what that means. I think for some people that means like tighten the borders even more. We don't need anybody else in here. And then for other people, which is where I would fall, like we need reform in such a way that people can like enter more in a more healthy manner. Like there's going to be opportunities. There's going to be systems in place that are that when they get here, because they, they decided that they needed to be here. Obviously a lot of times they're leaving um, unsavory places where there wasn't opportunity for them and they felt like in danger. And that's where that seeking asylum comes in. And it's like my reform. I want to see them be able to enter like in a more streamlined way to where, They can start to participate in the opportunities that, that they thought were here. Right. And, um, so even when we have things that we, many of us might agree on, like immigration reform, there are varying ideas within, you know, what that might mean, but that's where I think the messaging comes in again. Yeah. Right. Of like, if we can make changes on this, it's going to benefit the thinking of the majority of people and not just these fringe outsiders.
1: Yeah, no, no, I agree. I think. there's a lot of, uh, promise in, in trying to do that. Um, I think the real question has always been just how, how to get there. Um, you know, I think it's interesting. I think the, the American dream, right. I think it's very much still alive for some people. Other people mm-hmm. may not feel as, as though it is. And I think they're probably both right. Yeah. Depending on where you're at and your circumstances and, um, how you're interacting with, with our country. Mm-hmm. Um, and i think it just again underscores the incredible complexity of of running a country that is full of you know probably 350 million people at this point with widely varying views widely yeah. varying backgrounds um it is a great melting pot in every sense of the word mm-hmm. which which has always been america's strength really yeah um and i think it still can be mm-hmm. um yeah very interesting though i th- i think another thing leading to A lot of issues right now is is sort of, I think people feel as though the, um, the meritocracy is breaking down a bit. Mm -hmm. Um, and I feel like the American dream was always sort of grounded by this idea that we were in a meritocracy Mm -hmm. and where if, if you work hard and you do your best, you strive and you have merit, like you, you can rise. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think for various reasons that are way beyond my political knowledge, you know, Mm -hmm. I, I think we're struggling with that right now because a lot of people do not feel that way.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting. And, and it's just interesting to see what some people feel threatened by and what other people don't feel threatened by. Right. Yeah. There's things are constantly changing and a change that might take place today. I can look at and be like, yeah, that doesn't like really impact how I'm going to go about my life. And then other people are like, no, that is going to drastically impact how I go about my life. And they might be right. And they might be wrong. They might be, Just looking for something to get upset with and so they're shining a spotlight on something that actually isn't going to impact them and then other times you know they're they're doing that for noble reasons like no this is unjust and this is something that needs attention because it's going to impact me and the ones i love in a negative way and um, we're all coming from different places and yet somehow trying seems like we're hanging on by a thread trying to function together and and i guess honor one another in this in this country. And it's very difficult. And then the things that you see, you know, with Facebook, um, some of the leaks that were coming out of there, like recently, it's just, it's really interesting. And I don't know what to make of that, but I feel like the further along I go, the more I am of the side that social media is not helping. And I get that that's not like a new stance for a lot of people. But, um, for me personally, I've started to really see it play out. Of course, the last four or five years, more so for me personally, I think the last year where I was realizing that my participation in social media was leading me to, to really hate certain people. Yeah. And I'm not saying that you have to love everybody. I certainly don't love or like everybody, but, um, or I should say like everybody certainly don't like everybody. Um, but they're still there whether I hate them or not. And so I think I kind of owe it to myself and I owe it to them to not participate as heavily in something that's leading me to hate them. Right.
1: Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. I mean, full disclosure, I, I've been Facebook free, I think for four years now, Oh, congrats. It's been uh it's been completely liberating. Yeah. I, I would say like my overall happiness level has, in, has increased. Um, I did it initially, I think just as an experiment mm-hmm. to see, um, would I be like less distracted? Yep. Um, and at first, I think for the first two weeks, you know, it was, it was a little challenging. Um, there are definitely hiccups. Like thank God my wife's still on there cause she mm-hmm. finds out about all of the family related yeah. issues. But I think the original motivation for it was I was just like seeing so many, um, things going on in other people's lives that it's not that I didn't care. Mm-hmm. But It's just that they they weren't close enough to me to where I would call them or yeah talk about them and it was kind of overwhelming. Um, and I kind of figured out that the people who really matter to me on a deep level, like I'm, I talk to them regularly anyways, mm-hmm. and that maybe I could do that without Facebook. Right. Um, and I think this was even pr- probably before a lot of the crazy, um, political driven things on Facebook. Yeah. Um, so I've been a little bit of an outsider for, mm-hmm. for that experience, to be honest. Um, but it's great.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm a little jealous and I I don't I honestly don't think I'm far behind it. In fact, the week of us having this conversation, um, I'm. I guess the thing that has prevented me from totally walking away is the fact that I have to promote certain things for business on there. And now I'm at the point of just trying to weigh like, well, what if I don't promote things? Is my business really gonna suffer that much and i'm not convinced that that it really will and so i'm i think that i'm gonna keep probably my facebook in operation but i'm actually gonna have my wife like change my password and so then that'll just provide an additional barrier if i want to log on i have to feel that guilt of like asking my wife for the password and she's gonna be like well do you really want to do this and that <laughs> so I, I am in the in the middle of like putting up i think some additional barriers that'll prevent me from participating in it because the other thing outside of just me disliking certain people based on what i see them presenting on social media and and forgetting that what they're presenting for as as much as I might disagree with it it's still only a fraction of the person that they actually are right, right. they're so much more complex than than what that little thing that they're sharing on social media and that's why I started a podcast is because I was like i want to give people a, a broader view of who i am um and provide some nuance and then what i realized and it's it's a uh, In some ways, kind of a sad realization is it's like, no, the only way that you could really give people a totally accurate view of who you are is if they like, if it was like the Truman show, like they were following you around 24 hours a day, because I can go and I can put a one hour episode out a week and think that I'm providing all this nuance. And in some ways I am way beyond what I would ever post on social media, but it's not accounting for the future growth and the future change. Right. I had a lady from our church, Nancy, if you're listening, I love you. She came up to me and was like, Hey, I've been listening to some of your episodes and I don't agree with all of the things that you've said. And um, that would have probably upset me a little bit more like a couple months ago. But my response to her was, yeah, I don't really agree with everything that I said either. Um, If I, if I did like, I'd feel a lot, I wouldn't, I guess, second guess myself so much, but It was just really interesting. That's something I've had to come to grips with is like, do I leave those episodes up where I said some things that I've flip-flopped on, like we mentioned before? And I've determined that yes, I'm going to. And I just have to trust that when people take in that information, they're going to understand that a few episodes down the line I'm a different person and I've put the work into to to kind of be able to flip-flop on things, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, no, I
1: think that I would encourage you to leave them up. I mean, I think we should all present maybe less curated perfected versions of ourselves that are edified in a certain worldview. Mm-hmm. Um, again, like you whatever idea you had, you're, you're not married to that idea forever. Yeah. And I think by demonstrating that it's a thing that people can try to strive for in their own lives if they're not doing that already, mm-hmm. or just to at least feel like it's an option, right? Yeah. You can, you can live a life where you're not married to your ideas yep. where that's not your identity. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's a powerful thing.
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah, I feel I feel more comfortable in that. And I wasn't I was able not to take offense to what she had said. And I actually found it like refreshing and I appreciated that she said it because she felt, I think, comfortable enough to say, hey, I don't agree with everything you said, but she was like still listening to it. And I was like, man, I don't know if I have the strength of character to do that, to like listen to someone that sometimes I get so sensitive that when someone says one thing that I disagree with, I just like completely You know, I stopped consuming their content at least, you know, and so I was like, man, that's some strength of character to like say, yeah, I don't agree with this, but there's enough in here that I can still find value in it. And, and she, she probably values our relationship. And, and so I, I found that to be a little bit comforting, but the other thing that I forgot to say about social media usage that I've noticed with myself, and this is also driving, I think my decision to possibly walk away is I feel less sharp and like more dull, the Mm -hmm. more I consume it. Like the times in my life when I feel like I've been most able to critically think and to break issues down and participate in like fruitful conversations are when I've had a lot of time to just sit and think. And social media takes away those opportunities to do that. Sometimes you trick yourself into thinking, if I take in all this information, I'm bound to be getting smarter. Right. I'm bound to be sharper. Like I'm getting all these different angles of an issue. And I'm not sure that that's the truth. I think that if you take in too much of it, you're actually dulling like your sense of critical thinking. And I hate that feeling. I hate waking up and being like, man, I just don't feel as smart because I spent two hours on Instagram yesterday or whatever it was. And, um, that's, that's a big motivator for me too. No, I think that that's great insight. And
1: the research would bear that out. Mm -hmm. I believe Um, there is a dulling with overexposure to information, to constant stimulation, to losing that um, ability to really be bored. Yeah. Um, There's, there's another great book by that same author I mentioned earlier, Cal Newport. Uh, It's called deep work. Okay. Yeah. Um, That, that book was pivotal in in how I kind of try to shape my life Mm -hmm. and, and my work and I'm not always successful in that. Um, but the idea is that to do anything well and to produce work of value, you really need to have the space and time to go in depth. Right. And part of that is, um, separating yourself from distractions and creating opportunities to where you can work in uninterrupted chunks, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: um, for an hour, at least Yeah. uh, sometimes a whole day. And and I think if you go back through history, a lot of very accomplished people kind of worked in this way where, where they would, um, sort of forcibly remove themselves from the world, make themselves very difficult to contact, um, go on retreats. Mm-hmm. Cabin and, in the woods type of thing. Yeah. And then uh, emerge back from that into the world. And um, there's sort of like a season, um, a seasonality really to, to working that way where uh, you're engaged with the world. You're taking in information, you're being social. Mm-hmm. And then there are moments where you need to clamp down, remove yourself from everything um, to the most of your ability. All right. And that's different for different people.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but I've found that when I am successful in doing that, the work I do is much better. And, uh, you regain that mental edge, that sharp edge that you were talking about being dulled. Um, yeah, cause I think in everyday life, I agree. I mean, in a normal day, I, I by the end of it, I feel pretty mentally
0: dull. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. And, and you're not even just talking from taking in social media, you're, all the other things that are coming out from your environment. Like yeah, well, I interacted with this many people today and man, I'm like worn out. And yeah, you're not at your sharpest after that. I think you do need that like decompression or that seasonality probably.
1: Even, even in my practice, um, you know, there's a huge variance in what I do every day. Uh, but if, if I'm constantly interrupted or if I have a lot of different tasks going on or I'm multitasking, I'm doing procedures, I'm trying to interpret imaging studies at the same time. Um, at the end of it, I, I do feel much more drained and I feel like there is a, a de- degradation of quality a little mm-hmm. bit versus if I'm completely like locked in a room, not interrupted for eight hours, just completely like engrossed in what I'm doing. Mm. Um, you sort of hit a different point where you don't feel so exhausted afterwards. Right. Sort of hit that flow state.
0: Yep. Yep. Yeah. Well, I, I guess that probably brings us to um, what your wife had mentioned that you were passionate about discussing and, and maybe shedding some light on is like this, this idea behind burnout especially in the medical field. And I had just recently started to learn some things about, is it called clinicals, right? When you're, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, so we'll call them clinicals. Um, this idea behind the clinicals and like the lack, right? The lack of sleep that happens and just like the, just being pushed full bore mm-hmm. uh, through that. And you just said it degradation of, of quality of the services provided or the work or whatever. Well, and kind of like, it seems like we're pushing for that or we're encouraging that. So I'm curious your views on, on burnout and some of those things in your field.
1: Yeah. You know, it's a, it's a huge crisis in healthcare. Um, and it it has been really for decades now, it's just becoming more known, um, burnout. I, you know, unfortunately I think it's a really stigmatized term and, and very misunderstood, but it really just comes down to experiencing an abnormal amount of stress for an abnormal period of time. Okay. And uh it's sort of what happens to people who are put in that situation. Um for a long time in the psychology world, people really didn't even believe it was a, a thing, and there is still controversy about this um from a from an academic standpoint. But you know, I think the research continues to bear out that that it is very much a real phenomenon. And um to me, I think it's it's really just a it's a mismatch between the person, the job and the duration that you have to do it and the intensity. Okay. Um,
0: so are those four different factors? Yeah. Roughly.
1: And then there's really like if you dive into research, there's like six or seven okay. key things about work that contribute to burnout. Um, but I think at the core, you can understand it on a basic level. It's just if you do something too intensely for too long,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and um, you end up experiencing these. Is it really wide ranging symptoms? Actually, um, it's it's a feeling of exhaustion. Um, and actually, like physical exhaustion, where you feel like you can't get up out of bed, mm-hmm. you're mentally sore, you, your uh, your muscles ache. All right. Um, there's actually like physiological um, symptoms that you experience. There's also like a mental fog, um, sort of a, a feeling of kind of um, depersonalization, where you feel like you're a little bit outside of your body. Mm-hmm. Um, you feel a loss of control over your work and your life and your time. Um, and it's interesting, you know, across cultures, um, the experience of burnout exists. I mean, it's not just an American mm-hmm. paradigm. Um, it's very widely studied in Europe. Um, it's very widely studied in other cultures. It actually traces way back through history. You can find examples, um, in text dating back to like the biblical days mm-hmm. of, of the experience of burnout. Interesting. Um, and there, there are tons of, di- tons of different, like historical names for this concept of burnout. Um, there's, a uh, it's like, I can never say the word, right. Akedia or asedia. Okay. It's like the idea of emotional and physical exhaustion from, um, the intense practice of like a religion. Okay. And, uh, it was like a phenomenon where the most religious people, um, would become so depersonalized and exhausted by their, um, devotion mm-hmm. that they would basically fall into this, um, extreme form of burnout where they would become listless and almost like catatonic. All right. And completely exhausted.
0: That's interesting. Yeah. So they and they just you you kind of mentioned four factors, but maybe there's closer to like six or seven. That yeah. You said, but um, I think about so I I told you I came come from the field of social work prior to doing this, and burnout is a huge conversation in in social work, and um, it is very fascinating to hear kind of different people's take on burnout, whether they're in the field or they're outside of the field, because you have different. Um, groups of thought. And I think as harsh as it might sound, there's, there are, there's validity to both. Like when we talk about burnout, um, some people might be like, yeah, well that's what you signed up for. So like, what did you expect? And then sometimes the people experiencing it are like, no, you don't, you don't understand. Like I've been going, I haven't had weekends off in how long, or I've been on call even when I was away and, or now I'm in a job where I have to answer emails. Um, even when I leave the office at five, I'm answering emails till right up before bed. And so I I think that sometimes burnout is caused by uh, unexpected things, like things we didn't know we were agreeing to mm-hmm. when we when we took the job.
1: Yeah, no, I think that's, that's a great observation. Um, I think a big reason for the stigmatization of it is for, for far too long, the idea has always been focusing on the, Kind of the experience of the person and attributing it to that person right mm-hmm. um, so in your field in social work when social workers feel burned out there's sort of a natural historical itch to to say well you know it's it's something related to you mm-hmm. um you are burning out yeah but or you're weak yeah Yeah. Um, but the truth is actually completely the opposite. It's very much about the system that you're interacting with and the type of situations that you're in. Mm-hmm. And when you re-understand the idea of why burnout happens and and how it happens from that lens, all of a sudden it it becomes a much I wouldn't say easier topic to deal with. I mean, it's still very challenging, but there are all these tools that you can use to try to improve it mm-hmm. um, by removing the idea that it's like a personal character defect or yeah. something that you need to just, uh, be more stoic about, mm-hmm. um, and you know, and I, of course there's variance, right? I think we're all probably on a spectrum for how much we can endure for how long. And it's all contextual. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes, you know, I can put myself through incredibly grueling stretches of
0: work yeah. and I'm fine. Right. Um, cause and, maybe you're sleeping well, maybe you're eating well, like maybe the other stuff is lined up, right. All the yeah. other, maybe your relationships are in a healthy spot. Exactly, and 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 it's like about meaning too. You know,
1: if I'm working that way in a context where I'm finding incredible personal meaning from Mm -hmm. what I'm doing, or there's a bigger purpose, then you can go through a lot more. When when you remove that meaning from the situation, it's much easier to burn out. Mm. And so I think um, that's an, an often neglected aspect of burnout. It's like understanding the context
0: in which the burnout is happening. Yes, I think okay, that's a great point because I think about times where You know, I feel like I've experienced burnout for sure, but I think that the times I experienced it, it was something I could recover from. It wasn't like a, okay, nope, this is it for me. I'm walking away because I'm so burned out. It was like, I just need a moment to take a breath or a weekend to take a breath. Um, and And a lot of times I think when I had those moments or when I had those weekends away or whatever it was, maybe it's back to that seasonality that gave me enough of a pause where I could reevaluate and like find the meaning again or revisit the meaning of why I was doing what I was doing. And so it doesn't mean that you're not about to walk right back into the fire the next week, but it always meant like there's a reason why you're doing it and you're, you're gifted in this area and you're serving people. And so you're going to walk right back into it. It's going to be really difficult, but there was that meaning again. And it, it maybe made the fire not burn so hot in some ways.
1: Yeah, no, it definitely can um, protect you. Um, You know, I think even with the most, you know, Deep sense of purpose um, for what you're doing. Anyone can still burn out, even from from the mm-hmm. most meaningful work. But it, it is a huge protective factor, um, and that's not really something that I I really understood well until um, I guess I experienced it myself, and mm-hmm. and I really became kind of obsessed with this idea because when I when I experienced burnout, I actually had no idea what it even was. It was mm-hmm. This was probably in t- 2014, 2015, and I think even Back then, it was much less widely known. Yeah, um, I don't think there were, were any like pop culture journalists covering this idea. Right. Um, so it, it was just interesting because even in the medical community and being educated in, in all of these different ways that the human mind and body can break down, I, I had no idea what burnout was. Mm-hmm. I really had to like think about like what I was experiencing. And then I was like, OK, is, is this a thing or is, just, yeah. is this just like? some weird uh, manifestation of like a depression. I don't know I have or right. Um, because I, I really am in general, I'm a pretty like optimistic, re- I would think resilient person. Mm-hmm. I've never fortunately really struggled with like a mental health issue. Right. Um, but this was the first time where I confronted something where I was like, this isn't normal.
0: Mm. Um, and it's not, you know, I'm not myself in this state. So what is it? Interesting. And that, that took place like during medical school? It was, it it took place after medical school. Um, so in medical school
1: also we were working incredibly hard. Um, but, and I think for various reasons, I found it not as draining. Mm -hmm. Um, I think because it was more aligned with this big goal that, that I had right to, to become a physician, to just explore all these ideas that had fascinated me for a long time. So I found it much easier to to get through that stretch. It was um during my first year of medical training um out in the real world, okay um, where I first started to experience it and um you know, I think for a variety of reasons, um the intensity of the work, uh regularly working you know eighty plus hours a week mm-hmm. um, losing weekends, missing family events, yep. um, just an incredible amount of work during a normal day, like an average day was six a.m. to like eight, nine p.m. Sometimes, yeah. yeah. And it, other times, like there were there were days where you never left, mm-hmm. even though you were supposed to. Yeah, right. So, so I, I think it was like in that context where I first encountered the idea of, of burnout, it, it just happened slowly. Mm-hmm. You know, for the first month or two, you're you're doing that kind of work, and um, you think, well, I'll just get through this. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm tired, but I think it's just like a very um, insidious thing that happens every mm-hmm. time, and then all of a sudden, five six months later, you realize like your perception of the world is totally different. You're, yeah. you're not thinking clearly. You're you're not um, engaged and present. Yeah. Um, I think it's just like a very slow, slippery slope. Mm-hmm. At least for me,
0: right? That's yeah. That's really interesting. And the other thing is that these conversations, say around something like burnout, they're involving people from different generations, and so I'll. Sp- This is maybe a generalization of generations, but, um, you might talk to someone from an older generation and they're like, yeah, no, I worked, you know, 60, 80 hours a week for 35 years. And then I retired and I was fine. it's like, that might be true, but also like, how was your marriage? How was your family doing? Like, what did you miss out on? And so there are some people who are willing to compromise on the things outside of the job. Right. Where, whereas there might be someone, I think you and I fall in the same boat where it's like, you know, I, I might be willing to work 60 hours a week, as long as I can still participate in that other stuff too. And I know that things are okay in these other areas of my life. Cause I value those. Um, I'm not willing to compromise on that a lot of times though. And and, and typically it is like overworking. It's a I I guess my approach to life has been, and this has come along with being self-employed too, is that not just working for like retirement, but getting small tastes of freedom while I'm working, Yeah, you know, being able to make my own decisions, being able to determine like when I want to take an afternoon off and just like go take a hike with the dog and, and different things like that. And that has like protected me, I think from, from burnout in certain areas. And it's not always related to the number of hours you're working, which I don't think is what you were saying, but um there's so many other factors like I just am I'm more inclined to feel burnout if I am looking over my shoulder and I'm like, man, things aren't good at home yeah. right now either. Right. It, it's going to just kind of expedite the process of me wanting to quit or walk away. Oh, yeah. No, for sure. I think the factors you
1: just just described are very protective. You know, you have as, as a self-employed person, you have agency over your time mm-hmm. and how you're spending it. And that that's an incredibly powerful thing that not very many people are fortunate to have actually right. like over, over their work. Um, and that's one of the bigger determining factors. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, during that period of time when I was experiencing burnout, I, I really had no agency over my time. I, yeah. I was basically, it sounds <laughs> brutal to say, but I feel like I was a, kind of a cog yeah. in, in this giant medical machine. And, um, you know, my job was to show up, do the work and just keep going, mm-hmm. um, nonstop know 12 15 18 hours straight yeah. no break no sleep no no meals mm-hmm. um yeah and you know it's just um when you're a cog you, you are going to be much more prone to feeling that way um you know, i think w- one person i think about a lot with, with thinking about burnout is actually like elon musk mm-hmm. you think about if, if if you've ever read anything about that guy and the way he works yeah I mean, he probably works a hundred hours a week. Right. Every week. he's probably done that for the past like 15 years. Yep. Um, I mean, he in some ways he's he's like pathologic. Mm-hmm. But um, he's completely organized his life around trying to further these big ideas that he has. And yeah, um whether or not you're a fan of his, um, I think I think it's just a really interesting case study in burnout, right? Like I'm sure he has struggled with it at times. I think it's normal. But I mean, for all intents and purposes, it never seems like he's actually hit a a point of clinical Mm -hmm. burnout. Like that guy is just nonstop. He's a machine. Mm -hmm. But I think it's because it's so aligned with his purpose. Like he feels like he's doing his life's purpose Mm -hmm. and he's organized his whole life around
0: that. Yep. That makes, that makes a ton of sense. So if we have someone like Elon Musk where it's like, man, he, he must be miserable. Like his brain never stops working. I don't even think his brain allows him to stop working. Yeah. Like you said, and he's, he's working these you know 100 hour weeks and it's like maybe sometimes the question that we ask ourselves is just would i be more am i more miserable sticking in this lane or am i more miserable having to walk away and i think that he would be more miserable if he walked away than he would if he was in those 100 hour weeks
1: yes yeah for sure and i think every person who gets to that point of burnout like further down the road i think you do hit a moment where you're like do i have to walk away mhm um do i have to change something completely about my life and you know i feel like i hit that point too yeah um it was uh about two years into medical training Mm -hmm. um where i just had to have like an honest like realization with myself i was like okay i'm not willing to um continue to do it in this way Mm -hmm. um like if if this is how i'm gonna live my life like that's not okay yeah. Um, and so I just had to sort of basically draw a line in the sand and be like, okay, I'm either going to have to change this or I'm going to have to change this and walk away and do something else. Mm-hmm. Um, but getting to that point, I mean, it was just an incredibly like painful, hard process to get to that point of realization where you're like, wow, like I'm, I'm really at this point where, mm-hmm. where I have to decide. Um, but again, it kind of came back to, I just didn't even understand what I, w- I was experiencing until maybe a few months before that moment. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, you um, just never been educated on that or, or told that this could be something that happens to you?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And again, I think it sounds funny to say back then, I mean, it was only what, seven, six, seven years ago, yeah. but I really do think it was much less, um, widely disseminated. You know, I, I only stumbled upon it because I was like geeking out about this and trying to figure out what I was dealing with. Um, and thankfully, I, you know, I think it is a topic that is becoming more widely understood Mm -hmm. even if it's misunderstood at least people know that the term burnout right it's like an actual thing that happens yeah Yeah. um although again i i I still fear that it's widely misunderstood and miscast Mm -hmm. as a personal issue um but that's that kind of goes down to like a lot of the things i want to work on and write about um I'm, i'm i'm sort of I wouldn't say i'm pivoting away from burnout but i'm trying to branch off of it okay because i i believe that like for any person um and, and any any kind of work you can put it on a spectrum right of how how it makes you feel and how mm-hmm. it enriches your life so like on the far negative end there's this idea of burnout and so any work that you do i think in theory can produce burnout mm. in the appropriate context um same thing almost any kind of work can produce it's like immense fulfillment Mm -hmm. and and can be like meaning and purpose driving um and so i think we're all somewhere like with whatever we're doing we're all somewhere on that spectrum of like and and it's a really complicated topic because i think it's individually specific it's comes down to like our own intrinsic wants Mm -hmm. and needs but there are bigger factors um about any kind of task that can be broken down right in a more scientific way and so I'm, I'm sort of trying to pioneer the understanding of the science of meaningful work. That's cool, man. So like, how, how can you take any job and break it down and make it more meaningful? Mm-hmm. Because I do think there is like a recipe there and it's not to say that you can make any task, um, life fulfilling and defining. Right. But I think, can you shift it down the spectrum? Mm. Can you take a job that produces a ton of burnout and make it tolerable? Yeah. Like that's still a win. Mm hmm both for the individual person and for society. Right. Um, and I do think that the idea of meaningful work is, it's, it's gonna become a driving force in society, like in the future, because I think there's actually a gap that we don't talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, and rightly so, we talk a lot about um, inequality in um, socioeconomic terms, mm-hmm. in, in terms of outcomes, in terms of access to certain things. Um, but I, I don't think we actually talk about the um, poverty of meaning mm. that a lot of people experience and that I think that cuts across a lot of other categories. It cuts across uh, socioeconomic divides um to a large extent. It, it cuts across, you know, um, philosophical stances, religion, racial divides. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it really is um I think there's a stark difference between the people in our society who are fortunate enough to um be able to work and make a living in a, in a field and in a way that gives their life purpose and meaning. And um, is like a fulfilling activity Mm -hmm. and the people who do not have access to that, because um, I mean, you probably feel this too, as as someone who does creative work. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's nothing better than doing something you care about and doing it well and feeling that like intense joy that comes with doing something hard, doing something well. That's like a, I think a fundamental human experience Mm -hmm. and a drive. And, um, there are just so many people who have a poverty of meaning in their lives. And, uh, unfortunately the work that we do currently is not helping
0: that. right. That's yeah. So using myself as an example, and I'm, I'm incredibly privileged because you talk about the creativity that's involved in my job. So I get to admit that in my first year of business financially, I wasn't where I was prior to when my wife and I were both employed and we both lost employment at one time or another through, through the pandemic. And it's like, but I was, my wife was able to get another job very quickly. And so during that whole time, I was able to weigh without the pressure of like putting food on the table. I was able to weigh, am I okay making a little bit of less money, making a little less money um, while you gather up clients but exercise that creativity versus like heading right back out into the job market, knowing that there's going to be a consistent paycheck. And that's the thing, right? The consistency Yeah, is the money going to come every two weeks versus, you know, billing monthly or whatever it might be. Um, and so I was able to make that decision. And again, maybe it's that zooming in and zooming out type of view, but you could look and be like, man, Taylor was totally comfortable. Just like, what a guy, you know, what a guy where he was able to prioritize creativity over the dollar. It's like, I don't know if I'm being honest, I still had that safety net of my wife's income. And I like to be transparent with that of like, I made, I made the decision because I didn't have these, these other pressures on me, you know? And I think that's kind of what you're talking about is if there's people who have their bases covered financially, maybe it's a little bit easier for them to see the meaning in their work. Or to find opportunities where there's meaning? I think so. You know, you obviously have a leash, right? And you have
1: more, more uh, runway Mm -hmm. to do something. Um, It's a really interesting time in human history. I don't know if many people realize this, but it's actually the first time in human history, the last like decade or so, where wealthy people work more than poor people. Mm. Oh, right. Like, isn't that. A fascinating idea but it actually is true and it it is not that's not like a character judgment statement it's like they're actually choosing to work more because they have more employment opportunities right and maybe on average they're they're better compensated right they have more opportunity for the sort of purpose life-defining work Mm -hmm. that reads that it's not a commentary at all on on people who are less fortunate not wanting to work because i don't believe that at all like I, i really believe that every person to their core um you know, if if they're of sound mind and body, they they want to work, yeah. And and not in like the narrow like I have a job kind of work, but I, I really believe people intrinsically want to add value mm-hmm. to other people and to the world, and they want to feel like they have a purpose, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I think right now we have a poverty of purpose, and it does unfortunately cut across like a, socio- a socioeconomic divide. Mm-hmm. Um And I think the thing that really motivated me to focus on this mission of sort of trying to redefine work and and focus on producing meaningful work for more people is that i think we could be headed for quite a dystopian future maybe where um it's actually like i mean there'll be huge financial divides but there there may be a huge divide in fulfillment right there there could be mm-hmm. a, a certain cohort of people who do the majority of work because most work in the future may be able to be automated All right? may be able to be outsourced there'll be like a creative intellectual class of people who are like meaningfully employed, who have a purpose in what they do. And then there may be like a huge class of people who are sort of listless and, yeah. and searching for that meaning in their lives. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, I think we, we may end up at that point quicker than we realize.
0: Yeah, that is, that is very strange. And I like that term poverty of purpose. Did you create that? Or did you hear that? Oh, uh, I just created it. Okay. Now. <laughs> nice, man. Well, write it down. Um, or we recorded it so we won't forget, but. Um, poverty of purpose. I, I was reminded of the show we were watching called nine perfect strangers. And there's this guy in the show who won the lottery. He was like, he was a delivery driver, uh, did some type of like fulfillment and he won the lottery won like 22 or $30 million. And as soon as he got that money, he quit his job. And then he started to really just share with people like his poverty of purpose. He's like, you would think in one sense that he could take that million dollars and like find new endeavors or, or create new opportunities and and ways to fulfill his life. And he, he just kept talking about how he couldn't get past missing his old job where he was like loading trucks. He's like, I had a purpose and I didn't do anything to deserve this money except buy a lottery ticket. He's like, and it's brought me nothing but like a lack of purpose. And, and he missed the most, Kind of like we would look in, at mundane tasks. He's like, I miss filling the boxes. I miss talking with the guy next to me and making jokes about how our job sucks. I miss loading the truck. I miss driving and seeing the same people on my route. And that was, I don't know, it just kind of an interesting take because he didn't realize it until after he left that job when he you know, supposedly had everything he ever would want in the form of millions of dollars that he was missing his purpose. And I think that that kind of it fits well. Yeah, no, I think that that's, that's a
1: great analogy for what we were talking about. Um, it's, it's so interesting. We just, we talk so little about purpose and, and in our lives and in our work. Um, yet it's so important and fundamental to like how we actually experience our lives and Mm -hmm. and how maybe at the end of our lives, how, how we feel about the time that we had. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I'm just extremely, uh, motivated by the idea that, Yes, things cannot be made perfect. And like there will always be mundane work. Right. But I do believe that there's like room to improve mm-hmm. every task and to to give people more opportunities to to find that both in their work and in their own lives. Um, and I think once you realize that, I mean, it's, it's an extremely empowering way to view the world um, versus this sort of fixed mindset of like, well, you know, whatever, this job's just going to suck. Yeah because there are like things that you can change about it, um, to make it better. And, uh, I don't know. I, I, I think once you think about work in that way, maybe you can even look back to the jobs that you've had. Right. And you can start to think, well, what, what about that job? Like, say I still had to do this task, but could Mm. I have done it in a different way? Or could there have been a systematic change that would make it a much more enjoyable job or relieved some of that pressure and there often are like small like tweaks that you can make to the workflow that have a huge downstream impact on the actual experience of the person doing the work
0: yeah this is uh i think that's a great way to end and i know you got to get out of here but this was truly thank you for coming in this was a really cool conversation and um one that you know it went a different direction than i even expected it would and um i i enjoy talking with people like you that are they they've really thought through certain things. And so then I get this rush from like trying to keep up with, with your uh, depth of thinking. And so it was really cool. And thanks for, thanks for being here. Oh yeah. No, thank you. I had a great time and let's do it again. All right. Sounds good. And thank you guys for listening.